Welcome to So Says Rick. Mostly True Stories by Rick Hall. Welcome to episode 32. For a while, we said we weren't going to keep track of the episodes, <laughs> but obviously we are. So we're kind of proud of episode 32. Exactly. What is new in the world for us, Laura? Well, things are opening up. That's right. It's summer, which is a lovely time for things to be opening up. And we have gone out to eat more in the last like two or three weeks than, well, obviously we didn't go at all in like right. a, a year and a half before that. So we've been seeing friends, going out to restaurants. It's and, great. Yeah. And actually, we went out last night and it celebrated our 30th anniversary yes. of being married to each other. <laughs> I know. It's a stunner. We went to Musso and Frank's, which is an old school Hollywood restaurant. It's been around since 1919. And the old red leather booths, and it's just so old school. And there's one table at the front of the restaurant where, who was it? That was the table that Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton liked to sit at because it was by the only window and that way they could keep an eye on their horses. That's right. And rumor is that they would race from the studio on Highland on their horses, and the one that got there first didn't have to pay for the bill. Right, exactly. Which, whether it's true or not, it's a great story. It's a good story. We should call this podcast Old Hollywood, because we're educating people, too. And, well, they might interpret us as being old Hollywood. <laughs> That's true. Speaking of that, we're sitting in the booth, and they gave us a nice little card and brought us a, you know, a brownie with a candle in it. But across from us was a young couple, and we couldn't help but be the old people that sat there and go, remember when we were that young? It was yeah, us to eat. 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We also are starting to move towards doing live performances with our improv. Yes, teaching and performing with improv. We have our first booking, I think, is in September. So we're headed that way. And I'll tell you, for improv, we've been teaching on Zoom, and it's great. It's allowed us to reach people that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. Right. I mean, we taught in Brazil. It was great. But we really miss the live audiences, yeah, so we're and, looking forward to it. And in improv, so much of it is about the connection between the performers, and it's just a lot harder to do on Zoom. Right, yeah. right. But you know what does work pretty well on Zoom is storytelling. I mm -hmm. did a show just last week, Tales by the Sea, and Buxy curates that show, and it's really a fun show. And it was top-notch storytellers. I was swimming in the deep end with these kids, man. <laughs> it was good. It was good all around. Right, right. Yeah. And I stay connected with uh, my buddy Ty Fance as a storyteller and Beverly Mickens. And one of the storytellers that I really kind of connect with is Suzanne Wirtz, because there's things about her growing up that remind me of how I grew up. Oh, definitely. She grew up in a small town in, I think it was North Carolina. Right, right. Yeah, there's definitely some similarities between you two. <laughs> and that is why we invited her to be the guest storyteller on this episode of So Says Rick. Exactly. And it is really lovely that you're part of this storytelling community because not only is it a way to learn and grow from each other, 
but it's also a great way to get people on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's marketing, honey. And you just revealed our marketing secret. <laughs> so here is Suzanne Words. She came into our studio and told her story, Acorn Assassin. When I was 11, I almost killed all of the children in my neighborhood. My flirtation with potential mass murder began innocently enough. It was the summer of 1977. Long, sweaty days of playing Red Rover and Charlie's Angels blended into nights spent waiting for the ice cream truck to come jangling down Old Farm Road to the base of our cul-de-sac where we'd shell out 50 cents of hard-earned allowance for orange push-ups fudge bars and ice cream sandwiches. We'd sit on the curb licking drips off of our wrists as the lightning bugs began their magical dance. I loved my friends. I didn't set out to kill them. But the Indian village was my idea. We were bored and needed to come up with a way to make more money to support our ice cream truck and Little Sue's Mini Mart Wacky Packs habit. Remember those? Sticker packs of popular products with colorful, groofy graphics and punny names like Unlucky Charm Cereal, Cup of Poodles, Dura-Hell Batteries. We had to have more and more to cover our slam books and school folders. Dad built us a teepee with long branches from the sweet gum tree and a few two-by-fours left over from constructing his shed. We covered it in my brother's old red and blue plaid bedspread, and inside, our girls' club met in a circle on the grass with a Tupperware bowl full of homemade Chex Mix to plot our money-making scheme. We decided to host the Indian Village. We didn't call them Native Americans then, as we regularly played cowboys and Indians using cap guns and slingshots. If someone were lucky enough to find an arrowhead, they'd turn it into an arrow. Chances were, if they had good aim, you might get hit. Yes, Mom was right. We could have poked someone's eye out, but the warnings never stopped us from shooting at random, or with intention, and no one ever got badly injured. Metal trash can lids worked well as shields, even if they weren't authentic to the time period. At our Indian village, we planned to sell the kind of things I'd seen at the Oconalefti village in Cherokee, North Carolina. We'd offer war paint for a nickel, using the mini tubes from our mother's Avon lipstick samples. We set out to make a dozen clay pots out of the bountiful mud under the back porch where Dad stored his army green metal fishing boat. The musky red clay felt cool and smooth in my hands as I shaped it into bowls the size of baseballs and let them dry in the sun on the driveway after we'd pressed beads and seashells into them, as surely the Indians would have done. We spent a week weaving pot holders and making other items to sell in our village. My mom had gotten into macrame several years before, so we dug through her long-since-abandoned supplies and finished off a dozen beaded bracelets. We encouraged our parents to serve corn on the cob and then used the husks to make corn husk dolls with raffia belts, corn silk hair, and sharpie smiles. We collected a basket of acorns and used the tops as hats and bowls for our doll display. That is when I had the bright idea to make authentic Indian food. 
Surely, as hunters and gatherers and a people who wouldn't let anything they had go to waste, the Indians of the southern Piedmont, the Lumbee, Catawba, or Cherokee, they would have made use of the great pile of acorns minus their cupule caps lying in the crabgrass in my front yard. So I cracked them open and pulled out the piles of creamy yellow flesh and proceeded to mash them into a gooey paste. It tasted sour and acidic. I added a quarter cup of sugar and a half cup of milk and created a grits-like mixture that wasn't too terrible. We made a sign selling Dixie cups of real Indian food for ten cents. We created flyers featuring crayon drawings of our teepee to advertise the grand opening of our Indian village. A girls' club member was stationed at the end of the driveway in a lawn chair with our shoebox cash register on a TV tray, ready to accept the nickel admission price. We went cheap with the admission charge in the hope that people would be more inclined to spring for the 25 cents to a dollar we were asking for the clay pots, pot holders, bracelets, and corn husk dolls. Our mothers purchased most of them out of sympathy, guilt, or perhaps appreciation for our efforts. I'm pretty sure a couple moms made two-for-one bargains. But when it became clear that none of the lipstick, war-paint-covered boys in the neighborhood were going to buy any of our wares, we were ready to barter for Kool-Aid or homemade Rice Krispie treats. It wasn't until the mothers left that I realized I'd forgotten my pièce de résistance and went back in the house to get the tray of single-serving-size acorn mush cups. The kids lined up to try it, and we easily made a whole dollar. Girls' club members didn't have to pay, so we had about 15 kids standing in my yard daring one another to eat the authentic Indian food when Mrs. Lucas came over to purchase another potholder. She asked what we were doing, and then got all concerned. She rushed to my front door and told my mother, a registered nurse, who got on the phone with Mrs. Kenny, also a nurse, who rushed over with a small bottle of syrup of Ipecac as they hurriedly pulled old nursing school books and A encyclopedias off the shelves in the den, while Mrs. Lucas called poison control. Us kids stood in the grass by the teepee, trying to determine if the nausea we might have been feeling was due to being poisoned or if it was psychosomatic. My brother was moaning and clutching his stomach, turning in circles in a mock death dance designed to make me feel as guilty as possible. Was it me, or did Audra look ashen? Apparently, large amounts of ingested acorns can induce severe illness, and the tannic and gallic acids can cause damage to the gastrointestinal system and kidneys. That was the information gleaned from a medical book, but Mrs. Lucas was still on the line with poison control. I could see her stretching the phone cord toward the bay window as she assessed our condition. Mrs. Kenny was standing by with the ipecac and a spoon. In the dappled light coming through the sycamore tree, Beth definitely had taken on a yellow glow. Kidney failure led to jaundice, and jaundice made a person look yellow. I knew that from Mom's stories of my birth. My brother let out a mellow, dramatic moan, and Paul Kenny joined in, collapsing to the grass and writhing. Mrs. Kenny rushed toward him with her spoon, just as Mrs. Lucas came out of the house, the screen door slamming behind her as she assured us that we'd all live. Poison control recommended applesauce to calm any troubled tummies. 
Mom gave each of her friends a jar from the pantry, apologizing profusely for my overzealous behavior. Overzealous? She used that word often to describe me. I was deflated. Ah, but my zeal returned as I remembered our cash box, and I got excited over the thought of counting our earnings, hoping we'd not be asked to return the acorn mush money. But when I looked at the card table, the box was gone. We were soon engrossed in our old standby game of Charlie's Angels, during which it was deduced that the neighborhood bully Richie Brown had been seen skulking near the end of the driveway during the poison control commotion. No one would risk joining me in knocking on his door and demanding what was rightfully ours, and I didn't dare go alone. Richie's dad was known for sitting on his front porch and yelling at neighbors, often with a shotgun by his side. For weeks, I dreamt up Indian raids on the Browns' house, and when the ice cream truck stopped down the street where Richie lived, it pained me to imagine him converting our corn husk cash into a fudge-sickle. Hey, Suzanne, thanks for doing that story for us. I love being here. Thanks for having me. You know what? The reason I wanted you to tell this story is because it reminds me of a story I would tell about my childhood. I think our childhoods were pretty similar in some ways. I think so. Growing up in North Carolina, growing on up on the farm. Right. Experiencing things back in the 70s. Oh, yes. It was just a different time. And, the, and innocence to it also. Here's something you said from the 70s. Okay, I'm standing here looking at Suzanne, and you look like you could be one of Charlie's angels. Oh, it was my dream, Rick. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. Which one were you? Um, I always played Sabrina, but I wanted to be Farah. Okay, I have a question for you. Do you think Richie really stole the money? Yes, I do. Do you 100% know that, or you're just... I don't 100% know that, but I am sure. I'm pretty sure he did. He was, he was known for sitting on the footballs during our games and popping them when we'd play in the backyard. I mean, he, he was a bit of... He tripped me on the school bus one time, Rick. He I wish you could see her, her my face lunchbox. right now. She's so mad. <laughs> my brand new lunchbox. Actually, there's some good stories about the bullies in my life, so use them, honey. This has turned into therapy. <laughs> hey, did uh, Richie's dad really sit on the porch with a shotgun? Oh, yeah. The, there was a neighbor, another group of neighbors across the street, and we called them the Hatfields and McCoys. And after church on Sundays, they would literally sit in their lawn chairs and yell insults at each other. Wow. Nothing says the Sabbath like yelling insults at each no, other. No, I wasn't allowed to ride my bikes on Sunday on that part of the neighborhood. You've got a lot of stories. I've heard a lot of stories, and they're all true, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're loosely based on the truth. Come on. Well, I mean, you, you have to exaggerate a, a little bit. I've got a podcast called So Says Rick, mostly true stories. So Exactly. So mine are mostly true Suzanne stories. Right. So says Suzanne. You did a show at the Story Salon where you did several of your stories, like a memoirs, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Is that what you want to do? Or? I am. I'm turning it into a memoir. It's a slow and steady thing. One would think during the pandemic I would have gotten it all done, but alas, I wasn't necessarily so inspired to do I what know. I really should have been doing. If you doing. were like me, the first month and a half or so, you just, I didn't get anything accomplished. 
I, maybe you weren't as bad as me. No, I went longer without getting anything accomplished. Well, a month and a half. You're pretty good. That's uh, pretty impressive. I feel like a better person now. Yeah, you should. How Is much it? Netflix did you watch? Oh, I still, mm. I'm still hooked on some shows on Netflix. <laughs> This is making really interesting story for the listeners. <laughs> when you did your show at the Story Salon, you did an hour show. I believe you brought snacks that reminded you of your growing up years. What kind of snacks did you bring? Well, I had Twinkies to represent my youth. And then as I was getting a little bit older, I kind of got into a beverage. And I thought that the, the, the listeners needed to be feasting upon the beverage that I enjoyed when I was a teenager. <laughs> Which was? Boone's Farm Tickle Pink. <laughs> oh, I bet your stories were good after a few shots of that stuff. Actually, I have to say, I grew up a Baptist. I never drank, so I missed the Boone's Farm stage. Didn't miss much, yeah. Rick. The way you organize the kids in your neighborhood, I can see that in you because you're an organizer now. You do stuff, a lot of community stuff in Burbank, right? I do. You know, it's kind of funny when you reflect back to your 10 or 11-year-old self. I think, well, you were telling me a little while ago about your acting when you were in fifth grade. It came out. You are who you were when you were 10. That's right. That's right. Is there anything else you want to say before we go, Suzanne? Just great gratitude for you. You're oh, a good friend, you. and you inspire me with your stories. And you kept me so much company during the pandemic. Your stories, you and Laura listening to you. I told her when I saw her earlier, I feel like we're really close friends just because I was listening to you while I was on walks trying to get out and do something. Great. So thank you for that. Great. Well, I'm glad I could be part of it. And thanks for being on So Says Rick. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. That was great to hear that story from Suzanne. And also to hear you guys talking afterwards, you really did have similar upbringing. Right, right. And we were talking shop. That was yes. us talking shop. Yes. And I've heard Suzanne tell her stories before, but I'd never really gotten to know her at all. So it was really nice to have her here in our studio and get to know her better. And, you know, here's one difference between us, though. She did that role playing from TV shows when they were kids. I never did that. But I did role-playing. I thought people were watching me all the time because I was so interesting. So I guess my whole life was role-playing. I was destined to be an actor. We were more like Suzanne growing up in that we would play games based on popular culture, like she talked about playing Charlie's Angels right. and stuff, too. Give me, give me an example. Probably our favorite one was Wizard of Oz. Oh, great, right? great. Okay, but I was the youngest sister and the youngest of the group. And so I never once got to be Dorothy, and most of the time I had to be Toto. <laughs> Rather thankless role. Oh, yeah. And did Toto actually speak, or did you bark, or what? I don't really remember. I do remember them being irritated with me that I wasn't doing it right, but because it was a boring role. W would Toto just, like, come in and pee on the carpet or something? <laughs> Bad Toto. You played Barbies, too, and I'm kind of surprised because uh, Barbies are not something your mom would actually buy or want in the house, would she? Oh, no. Mom was way ahead of her time because she was not into Barbies because of the whole body image thing and stuff. But when we played Barbies, we would always go over to our friend's house because she not only had the Barbies, she had all the stuff, you know, the car and the, oh. yeah, and lots of outfits for Barbie. But here's the thing there. Again, the youngest of the group, I never got to be Barbie, 
I didn't even get to be Midge. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, Midge is the best friend, so it is the secondary role. But Midge can fit into Barbie's clothes and shoes, so at least she could still wear glamorous things. Right. So who did you play, Toto? <laughs> no, almost as bad. Skipper, the little sister. Okay? Skipper had flat feet. She couldn't even borrow Barbie's shoes. And all of her clothes were really boring. It was the the thankless role. So there were times where I played an alternate role. Okay, I which, don't know this I, character in the Barbie scheme of things. Well, she really wasn't part of the Barbie scheme of things. I sort of created her. Okay. So they had a little baby doll that was about the size of Barbie, right? Okay. She wasn't from the actual Barbie world. I, this is getting creepy already. <laughs> a little baby and we doll. Put a, I put a babushka on her, and then she was the grandma. <laughs> and she was sort of a comedic character. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> so she was way more fun to play than Skipper. You know, she would come in and, like, disrupt things and stuff. So did that irritate the all your friends, too? Huh? Yeah, probably. Was there a Ken? There was a Ken. But at one point, I think Ken got chewed on by the dog. Right. That, Toto? No, by their real dog. So then he was replaced with G.I. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's really a secondary character in that whole world. Anyway. Oh, oh yeah. Especially when it's all girls playing. Right. Like Ken was basically a prop anyway, so it didn't right. really matter. So he went from Ken, who would say things like, hey, Barbie, get in my car. To G.I. Joe would say, hey, Barbie, get in my car. Do you have your body armor on? <laughs> <laughs> and what? the car was Barbie's. It was not Ken's car. Oh. Barbie had her own car. Okay, so that at least was a little, you know, a right. little progressive for, for the early 70s. Barbie, I'm not riding around in a pink car. We're going to walk. <laughs> you got your body armor on? <laughs> Well, we've completely left Suzanne Wirtz in the dust. I mean, we she, have. she left the studio and bye, see ya. But actually, but she inspired us. There you go. Right. Well, it was great to have her here. And Ashley, I mentioned we did Tales by the Sea show last week, and she told such an interesting story. I think I want to have her come back in the studio and tell oh, that right, story. Oh, right, that story about coming to L.A. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's our teaser for something down the road in the near future. But until then, thanks for listening to this episode. It's great to have you here. Bye-bye. You have your body armor on? <laughs>